Hello. So Casey, this is our first recording back from spring break mm -hmm. and we're starting off hard with this one. We are. So we've been resting our spirits for the last uh, week and a half. So we're coming back rested and we're talking um, with a couple guests today. We, we're a stop on a book tour, which we have not done before. So it's very exciting. And it also actually, Jamil, um, if you think about it, brings us back to our start on this podcast. Yeah, it does. It does. I've been super excited for this conversation, as you know, as we both been. Um, a topic that is near and dear to our heart, something we've been talking a lot about on the podcast. And it's, you know, showcasing Black faculty and their experiences and the lack of representation in higher education that so many of our listeners, I'm sure, at this point are well aware of. Today we have with us co-authors, co-editors, um, Dr. Antia Allen of Pellissippi State Community College and Justin Stewart, faculty career coach, both of them also at Allen Ivy Prep um, and co-editors of this book, We're Not Okay, Black Faculty Experiences and Higher Education Strategies, which is one of the best titles and most evocative titles I think I've heard in a while. So welcome to Real Talk. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Welcome you both. Now, there is a quote I pull. I've pulled tons of quotes from this book, but I think that, you know, pretty wraps up <laughs> my feelings around all of this pretty well is towards the end. Mm -hmm. And there's a sentence that I love. Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, in the United States have been historically burdened with the weight of having to prove themselves in an oppressive system. And later it goes on to say, the system has continually failed us personally and professionally. And I think that essence right there, the system has continually failed us. Um, you read, you can hear about in this book in every single chapter of how the system of higher ed and the systems in which we interact with every day have failed us continually. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's always crazy because we have, it's always like when something happens then everyone comes together, but when everything goes back to normal, then for better or for worse, people go back to normal. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we got across in this conversation, um, as we did mention, as we did speak before, like the book is heavy and it has a lot of sensitive subjects, but because it's a call of action, I think that quote kind of identifies those that are really trying to be part of the solution and those that are essentially just pretending. And I think unfortunately, because people get, want to be part of the trend, uh, some companies may want to, you know, boost their numbers or, you know, make themselves look a little bit better in the public light. Uh, when you actually speak to the individuals that work within these companies, whether it be black, brown, um, Asian, part of the LGBTQ community, any of those uh, different minorities, when you speak to them and you ask them questions about, you know, oh, I see your company is doing such and such, that must be so great. And they'll kind of like smirk or like, yeah, that's not what they're doing here. They may be showing you all that, but while we're here, no, it's just business as usual. So, you know, that quote basically spoke to that idea that, you know, 
even as even from what we say, we're actually doing something opposite, and we continue to just continue to we just continue to set up different blockades or different obstacles, which make things a little bit harder. And you always see it because uh, one thing that me and Dr. Allen always spoke, speak about is the key to representation, and not only representation when it comes to one specific role, but you know, representation across the board. When you look at your company, what does your leadership look like? What does the mid-level look like? What does the low-level look like? It should just be evenly proportioned, but unfortunately, you know, we don't see that. Yeah, there's a lot of performative allyship. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> they, there is this idea of these are all the things that we know we should be doing. Here's what we say we're going to do. And we're with you, we're really with you. But then the failure comes in in the end where you realize, oh, you're not really with me. You were just with me in statement, but not in actual action. Mm -hmm. Or you invited me to this conversation, but you didn't listen to what I had to say. Absolutely. Or I didn't actually have a chance to speak. Or or even worse, <laughs> even worse, we're trying to do something, but hey, Jamil, can you be the one that actually handles it? I know we've talked about it, but can you do all the work? So oh, that's, that's real. the other component execute, to it as well. Execute the plan, make the plan, execute the plan. Mm -hmm. We know <laughs> how that okay. And then be responsible if it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, you mm -hmm. know, we put it in your hands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yes. Uh, so this book, um, let, let's give folks um, an idea. So, so we were uh, lucky enough to read an advanced copy. The book's coming out early summer, 2022, May or June, um, probably May, let's say May. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe 19 authors, including the two of you. Um, and there's a whole, there's a wide range of voices in this book um, and people with different experiences. So um, we have a lot of different representation like within blackness. We're not just talking about a monolithic, you know, set of experiences. Mm -hmm. We also have people from big state schools, from community colleges, religious schools, um, small liberal arts schools, and so while there are some differences, and there are also different methods that these scholars are using in their work, so it really is quite a diverse and a rich um, set of texts mm -hmm. um, to consider, and including, and you also have in there, um, you know, recommendations and then real life um, examples from institutions. Um, so it really is a, it's a, I sort of felt like it was kind of an experiential book, actually. Yes. Um, and so I'm curious if you all can talk about the project as a whole, um, you know what, what sparked you to create the book? What's the experience been like of, of pulling scholars together um, inviting them into the project? Well, we were motivated to do the book um, mainly because of everything that was going on in the world. But even before that, we had been talking about the book. So even before George Floyd, even before Breonna Taylor, um, we were talking about doing something um, that would cause some type of change as it, re as it relates to um, black faculty staff or, or staff. Um, and we also kind of played with the idea of possibly doing something that focused more on adjuncts. And so this was mm -hmm. able to kind of bring that all together with the full-time faculty, the part-time faculty staff um, who also served as, as faculty at some point in time. Um, but I think the, the real key motivation was the desire for change. So understanding what, what I have and, you know, gone through as a faculty member or even as a staff member at institutions, understanding what Justin has gone through at institutions. Also, just knowing um, 
having, I should say, having conversations with other faculty and staff at other institutions, even K through 12 teachers that I'm friends with can share the same experiences, especially when you talk about things like microaggressions and tokenism. Like these are things that people are going through in different industries and across the board in different levels of education. Um, so more than anything, there was a desire for change. We also wanted to make sure that we had different voices represented, which, which I'm glad that you picked up on that. Um, we really wanted to make sure that we did have an adjunct voice because but whether people realize it or not, being full-time is a privilege, being tenured in full-time is a privilege. And so their experience and their voices are gonna be very different than those who are part-time or contingent faculty who they have a higher risk when it comes mm -hmm. to their experience at an institution. It's like, can, can I teach this? Am I allowed to have a discussion about this? You know, like really walking on eggshells because I may not be asked to come back the next semester. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was right. really important to have that, that voice included. And also, um, I was glad to see that some people even look back into their graduate level experience, right? So saying, you know, had I known this beforehand, not to say I wouldn't have gone into academia, but I would have been a lot more informed when I went in and I, maybe I wouldn't have been as shocked by some of the experiences that I had, um, just had I been prepared a little bit more. So it was, it was really important um, to have that diversity. So even though, yes, all black and brown faculty and staff experiences, but coming from just all these different perspectives. And so I'm hoping that that allows multiple people who pick up the book and read the book to maybe see themselves in one or a few of those chapters. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. And the one of the premises of the book is inclusion. So I appreciate that NTA mm -hmm. made that statement of whoever picks up the book we don't want anybody to feel excluded because coming from these communities where you know you kind of feel like you're pushed to the side or as you mentioned Casey uh the journey which was intentional from us whether you're an adjunct faculty or you've been tenured it's almost this idea of still feeling like, like you're a guest in the house and although we have like this we have company culture where you know we're all family we're all you know together in this honestly some people don't feel like that and, you know, listening to these stories, uh, it was very eye-opening. It was very shocking. The more that even as we got down to the last page and as we were reading the book over and over and over, it's just, it was almost like you always had to gasp every moment because you just, you would hope that this isn't something that's happening. You're not surprised that it's happening. But when you look at the year, when you look at how much um, progress we said that we've made, uh, we know that there's still a lot of work to do. So when, when everyone, when anyone picks up this book, you know, it's just, we want to be intentional going forward. Um, when you mention like the strategies, we want to make sure this isn't just something to say, hey, let's read all these problems and then let's go about mm -hmm. our business. Like if we're going to do this, um, and T and I said, let's do it. And if we're going to do it, let's do it right. And if we're doing it right, we're not just going to speak to all these contributing writers. We're not going to speak to everyone that we speak to and just have them vent. If, if you had, if you had a magic wand, if you could fix it, if your institution could fix it, you know, what could we do as long as it makes sense? And then, you know, we'll include that because we, we don't want to just have a conversation. We want to move forward with some actual meaningful action. So. And another key part of the book is talking about retention. And mm -hmm. we have one chapter where we have um, two women um, who are faculty members at they're at institutions and they actually both left those institutions. 
And so that's really like the basis of that chapter, like kind of what, these are the things that happened that led me to leave this institution. The institutions are not named in the book. Um, mm -hmm. The pseudonyms are used instead of their actual names. But, you know, I, I think that that was really an important, important piece to see, like, this is what can happen. And this is what does happen. And mm -hmm. I think that administrators who are able to read, especially that chapter, are going to be lucky enough to hear what some people never tell you on the way out. Yeah, you know, 100%. there's yes. we're just like, okay, one one day we're here, the next day it's this is my last week, you know, mm -hmm. and there's there's no conversation in between. So you're actually getting, you know, a window into what actually does happen that is mm -hmm. caused that causes people to leave. And they did stay in academia, but they moved to institutions where they felt like they were more valued. Yeah. There really is a generosity um, thinking about this as a reader. Um, I have like as a non-black person, I absolutely felt like a guest, like a welcomed guest as a reader of the book. Um, but there's a generosity, like you're saying, um, Antia, and sharing that experience of of why they left. That feels um, quite generous. And a lot of the things that people are sharing in this book are extraordinarily painful mm -hmm. um, and difficult. And that mm -hmm. generosity is is clear. I mean, um, and there are moments in the book where there are just so many different audiences that are addressed mm -hmm. directly, I think, and indirectly. Um, and it also had me reflecting on my own experiences um, a lot as a faculty member. And, and another piece that I think came through that I, I'm not used to seeing very much of is how much the body, the physical body of a, of a teacher mm -hmm. um, matters um, and how that looks different for different people. Mm -hmm. um, but I, that's something like typically we just, we talk about student mental health, maybe, usually not, we don't really talk much about faculty, physical, spiritual, or mental health, mm. you know, like, so that part's not even there, but just like the physical body, because as a trans person, that's something I think about constantly um, and negotiating like our physical bodies in space or even just like, oh, I don't physically feel that well today and yet I'm gonna go teach my class um, or the, the essays where um, early in the book, um, black male faculty talking about how hard they perform to not be read as aggressive and mm -hmm. yet still get these student evals of like, you know, that you're aggressive when the, this poor person is coming home at the end of the day, like face is sore from smiling, you know, when you don't mm -hmm. feel like smiling <laughs> and then at, like just so mindful of, mm -hmm. of performing with your body. All of that is stuff that I just haven't heard a lot of conversation about that I think is such a contribution. And I'm, I'm definitely glad that you picked that out, Casey, because I think to what you mentioned, another strong aspect that we do make sure that we speak about is, you know, mental health. How is everyone dealing, dealing with all this? Because when you think of things like competence, like I'm an educator, but I have a student that's kind of trying to check me about my qualifications mm -hmm. and have other faculty members that are saying, are you supposed to be here? Uh, we have one of our contributing writers uh, who mentioned a story about how he had to intentionally walk, walk around with a name tag because if he didn't, people wouldn't know that, oh, oh, you work here, oh, you're a faculty member. So you just, you just think of those type of strains. And when you're talking about like the, the body, uh, mm -hmm. things that we do make sure that we kind of look into or highlight is just certain coping strategies that people have to do because with that type of questioning of your ability, you know, you deal with things like imposter syndrome where 
am I really supposed to be here? Am I really the, as equipped as I can be? Because everyone else is making it seem like I'm not supposed to be here. And dealing with things like code switching and feeling as though my, my identity as I present it isn't enough. It's not valued. It's not respected. So I have to, uh, I have to approach it in a certain way where, you know, you'll take it, you'll take me serious. Like we always, we always joke about using, using a quote unquote white voice or saying like, Oh, I have to talk like this. I have to talk very prim and proper. I can't use slang. I have to be very poised. I have to be very postured. I have to project. I have to make sure I smile. Like there's all these things where it's just, and this is all before I actually start educating, before I start teaching, like mm -hmm. I have to mentally tell myself in order for me to not get in trouble, <laughs> I have to do all of these things. And you know, it's, it's tough. It's quite a task. And as I mentioned at the top of it, you know, it's, it's leads to burnout mentally because you have to go home with this. And you could do all that and it's still not have the results that you want it to have. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like you, you just, you just did all of this. You just wore yourself out trying to be what you think people wanted you to be trying to appear as you thought people wanted you to appear. And at the end of it, you still didn't get the, you still, like you said, you still get these negative evaluations. Um, you still have people questioning your confidence. You still have people, they may, they may like, it may not be in a, in a, an evaluation at the end of the semester. They might actually verbally say something to you um, mm -hmm. about the way you are. Like, why are you so, it could be, why are you so aggressive? And it's like, how am I aggressive? I, you know, what, did I not smile enough today? You know, was my tone was my tone too a little rough? Like, what what was it that I did? Um, so it's unfortunate that you really can do all of that and it still not get the results that you that you really wanted. Yes, the tone policing that happens in meetings, the tone mm -hmm. policing, especially to black women. I see it often happen to black women, um, mm -hmm. in cases. The tone policing, the not being taken serious, the need to code switch. And what I loved about this book so much was I have never been a faculty member. Um, you know, I have recently been through my undergraduate and now I'm a staff member, but I still were able to see my experiences represented and also mm -hmm. see the experiences of my peers and other fellow staff. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think people that are non-Black understand code switching and the reality of what that takes to do in mm -hmm. conversations and meetings and be able to be so fluent with it mm -hmm. and to code switch and then to go back within minutes. Um, and the amount of competency that takes to be able to do such a thing. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me of, I remember I had a committee meeting where for no apparent reason, but it happened to be, all of us happened to be black. And the amount of joy that meeting brought me every week mm. <laughs> just to meet with a bunch of black professionals. It was like night and day compared to my other meetings. You know, the comfortability, not having the code switch, being able to be authentically or organically yourself mm. um, felt very refreshing in higher ed. It is not something that black people in higher ed get to experience, a space of unity where you get to see yourself and your peers. Um, and, you know, be in community with each other. I think this is something that the book talks about is universities deliberately making spaces that allow people of color to be with each other and to be in this safe kind of space that they can carve out for themselves and what that looks like. 
And one of the things that um, that comes up in the book and that we've been sharing with with other groups is it doesn't have to always be in an internal group. So, right. you know, when you look at the numbers, we have such a low number of black faculty um, at institutions. Right. So we're looking at six percent nationally. Uh, and at some institutions, it actually might be much, much lower. It might be just one, like forget about this, this one person. Um, so then in that case, what does that person do? Obviously they have other identities. There's other types of groups that they could be a part of, but if they wanted to really be in conversation and dialogue with others that are black and also in faculty, it may mean that you need to do some type of cross collaboration with other institutions in order to have that type of you know community in order to build that type of community and and that that can still be helpful even if it's not at your institution and i think uh one of the words one of the phrases that Antia used is also very critical uh with cross-cultural so we don't we don't ever want anyone to feel isolated of you know black people come together with black people to talk about black facts or white people to come together to talk about white issues or asian people or so on and so forth with this idea of cross-cultural, you know, it's to what Casey was uh, mentioning earlier. It's it's a little bit eye-opening. It's almost like I'm I'm becoming a little bit more informed because I'm getting it from a, from the source. So being able to create those type of those types of environments for everybody, where I can teach you about what's going on, and I can learn from you as well. So having employee resource groups where you know, it might be an all a black group where, but it can be led by a white male, white female, or Asian male, Asian female with contributions. It's all about just building community together. So one thing that I never want anybody to ever feel like when they're reading the book is like, oh, let's separate. Everyone should just be isolated. So, you know, whatever. We It's all about growing together as a community, but offering offering things that allow for that to happen and allow for it to happen fluidly because we don't want everyone to be like on this side, on that side. We don't want to treat it like high school, everyone sitting at their specific table. We want everybody at the same table together and feeling comfortable enough to say, hey, this is how I'm feeling after, after Breonna Taylor. And you know, nobody gets nervous to say, oh, I have to go somewhere. It's just being able to have those type of transparent conversations without feeling as though you know, I'm going to be penalized or let me be weary of who I speak to because it could come back and bite me when at the end of the day, as long as I'm being respectful, I'm just providing my point of view, so. I'm really, I've been curious about whether or not the process of putting the book together. Was therapeutic? Um, was therapeutic, if it, if it actually served as that networking affinity building experience. I know that it's such a labor to put together an edited collection, but I'm wondering if it actually served that function for you all and for the contributors. There was a few parts to the book where I started cussing. Um, <laughs> you know the part where there is like two black women at the entire university mm -hmm. and they're constantly getting confused mm -hmm. for each other? I yeah. said, there ain't no damn way. I said, <laughs> I said, there ain't no way. There's not no, do you have a brother? Well, I don't have, how do you know? I said, ain't no way. Yeah, no, like the, two, the two men with the hair, like, mm -hmm. no, I, I would did not have my hair like he did because he has dreads and I don't. And it's, I think it's certain things like that. Like, so when I went to, when I went to high school or no, K through 12, I went to a uh, predominantly white school. It was, I think from nine, there was maybe like 80 um, African-American men and women against a student body of maybe like four to 500. 
And it's just certain things that where it's never intentional, like there's a certain innocence to it. But like when we talk about things like hair touching, it's like, oh, your hair doesn't look like mine. It's just like, I don't, <laughs> I would rather you not do that. But it's, it's innocence. But unless that innocence is checked, as we get older, we, you know, we just carry that. It's like, I don't, I don't understand what the big problem is. And it's that whole concept as well as that concept as well of basically having empathy for your fellow man or woman or your fellow person, your fellow human, like understand boundaries, understand what may be comfortable to you is not comfortable to me. And just establishing that. Or even how it looks like you ever have someone come up to you and like pet your hair. Like, I know you did not just come to me as a grown man and pet me. <laughs> like, you really just try to pet me now. <laughs> what is happening here? Said so no chia here. Sorry, no chia. Like, we don't do that. Like, oh my God, you, ooh, child, <laughs> what is happening here? Ooh, girl, please back up. That is funny. But yeah, I was, my students were just talking recently about um, how that, like, a, a woman in class with, like, the person sitting behind her would continually touch her hair and just like play with it as though it were her own hair. Mm. I, I just, I mean, I'm not, I suppose I'm not shocked, but it, it is like, I thought we could at least get to that point. Like, you know, my body, <laughs> my choice, yeah. you know, like no, no touching other people. Simply. I, I thought when yeah. most of us were kids, you know, mom or dad said, don't yes. put hands on anybody. Listen, we were having different conversations in childhood. I think we were yeah. having different conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's always interesting. And I guess to your point as well, Jamil, like I haven't, I also haven't been a faculty member. Um, I worked in higher education as like administration, but like you said, the stories that I hear, certain things that I see, um, I previously, like I said, for, for kindergarten through high school, I was in a program that took um, African-American. It was basically a program that created integration. So I they brought a similar program. Yeah, so called, it was the MECO program and they brought in uh, minority faculty from the inner city or minority students from the inner city and then took them, I think it was like a 40 minute bus ride out to certain outskirts where it was predominantly white and just allowed for integration. Uh, so having that experience and then when I did college, I went to Clark Atlanta University, so HBC. And then to your point, Jamil, where it was like, expressively like from step shows to everything is just like it's 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 a wild juxtaposition when you're comparing the two of them and uh when i take my i took my wife to our homecoming maybe two years ago and she was just so excited she was like i've never seen i've never seen a step show and i was like oh step shows are popping yeah it's 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 just interesting it's just always very interesting so yeah. So I grew up in Bridgeport, which is mm -hmm. mainly Black and Latino. Mm -hmm. um, like, no white peers. Mm -hmm. Only white people were the teachers. Yeah. And then in high school, we had a half-day program, which was one of the first in the city. And it basically brought students from Bridgeport and all the surrounding white, rich neighborhoods together for, mm -hmm. like, half a day mm -hmm. um, to interact as integration. So that was my first introduction into white peers. Mm -hmm. um, and then going to a PWI, even though I will say my PWI didn't really feel like a PWI all the time during mm -hmm. my undergrad. A lot of us Black students picked the same residence hall. So we lived on the same floors. Like we, we would pick an entire floor out. Um, we would take classes together strategically. We would eat together strategically, go to Black clubs and events. So like carving out our own space 
uh, yeah. for a couple years. So that kind of helped. But yeah, I got stories. Well, I worked in Res Life. Oh. I got stories now. <laughs> um, it, it was a time. We we need to do a whole series of episodes on Res Life. I just I've been thinking about how to do such a, such a thing tastefully. <laughs> yeah, well, because the, there's the the way that students and and faculty are, but particularly like students are gonna behave a certain way in a classroom setting, and we see some bad examples of how students are, you know, in the book. But then um, coming back to um, their residence life, like outside of school. They're yeah. all still on campus. They're acting a completely different way. And it's a side that as faculty, we don't necessarily see and where mm -hmm. a lot of pretty awful stuff can happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, like I said, it's, it's always weird. Cause even thinking about my college experience, just, you know, when you're in the dorm and you have supervision, but even if you didn't have supervision, because then there's certain people that's clocking, it's like, okay, what time does the RA leave? The RA leaves at 9.30, so we can just distract them, so we can do this. And it's, I mean, it's... Oh, that ain't our kind of res life. Our res life at our university <laughs> runs different. Um, okay. It runs, I think, completely different from any other university I've ever even heard of. We have a real res life. Like, it's people watching. We are here. There are RAs in the building. <laughs> but um, I often found the problems being with sometimes RAs, but sometimes mostly staff, not being comfortable with social justice, yeah. not being comfortable with how to address microaggressions, um, how to address parents mm -hmm. that may not like their person living with a Black resident, all that kind of stuff. Well, I was wondering if, you know, so one of the recommendations is for universities to create and support um, carve out space, funding, resources mm -hmm. for affinity groups um, and other um, environments that support, um, you know, Black faculty and other minoritized faculty on campus. Um, and and also looking outside, um, Antia, you were talking about outside of just the university. If you're one of like two, it's like, well, y'all can just go out to dinner, you know, mm -hmm. but like we're talking like expanding those networks outside of just our one university. So my question I was wondering as I was reading the book is whether that the process of putting the book together for you two and for the contributors, if it felt like that kind of community building work. I know also an edited collection is a whole lot of work. Um, so there's that piece too, but I wonder if, if it created these like sort of new connections or a, a sense of networking and affinity. Mm -hmm and putting it together? I would say, I think, probably not as much as we would have liked, mainly because we we really did this book during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was really difficult because of course there was, you know, you have your regular workload and we already talked about how, you know, a lot of black faculty are overburdened. Um, so there was already that going on. Combine that with the pandemic going on. I think a lot of it was just like, Let's, you know, like, let me just get this, this, you know, chapter to you. Let me get this draft to you. Let me get this finalized version to you. But we, we would, um, we would like to, you know, at some point now that we're, I don't want to say post pandemic, but now that we're, you know, coming out of it, I guess, hopefully, um, kind of get together with the contributing authors. We, I have done, um, uh, there was like a Twitter chat that I did with one of the other authors 
we talked about possibly, you know, presenting at conferences together and just doing other events mm-hmm. together. So even though we didn't get a chance to really have that build that kind of community during the making of the book, post book, you know, now that things have calmed down a, a lot, we'll really be able to have that time to um, to collaborate a lot more outside of the book, which is really important. And I, I think another thing that was great that we did or we had the hindsight for just because everyone was kind of working in their own little silos uh, we intentionally just tried to make use of our social media so for as part of the rollout and everything you know auntie and i were discussing about like doing uh, author spotlights or profiles so even though we didn't get to continuously you know talk to people on the phone we just had to kind of do it through email Uh, we would just make sure like every once a month or every other or twice a month we would just say hey Here's this particular um, contributing writer, Dr. Anika, for example. Uh, she has a chapter that deals with mental health. So we just did a profile for her that way. We, she, we can share with our groups. It allows us to share it to her groups and then, you know, kind of d- to build the community through there. Uh, so we've, we've been doing that since, I believe, top of the year uh, as we get closer and closer to the road update. So at the very least, you know, we're still trying to uplift um, everyone that contributed as much as we can. And we definitely want to shine a light on all the contributing authors because, you know, it can be a risk to to share these types of things in a book while you're still in higher ed at an institution, possibly not tenured. Um, when I started the book, I was not tenured. When I when we were talking about the, the thought of the book, I was not tenured. And the mm. book came, the book has been, I've been very clear with my institution about the book coming out. They've been very supportive. We've even done a presentation for them. And now I am tenured, but I totally understand how not having that can make you very hesitant about sharing a lot of the things that were shared. So we really thought it was important to make sure that we highlighted them in this way. And as our way of honestly just showing like that we're so grateful that they still, you know, were they were yeah. comfortable enough and vulnerable enough to share in this way in our in in the book project yes something i thought about myself um the power it took for a black faculty to share these experiences on such a public platform you know to be vulnerable about your experiences and still be at that institution um and to still go out and publish something like this i thought about but also the importance um, for other young Black professionals coming up, being able to read these experiences, even if they have never met Black faculty before. I remember I had a piece of the book, it was like, if there's so little Black faculty, do you think Black students are being taught by Black faculty? I have only had one Black faculty member mm-hmm. in my entire undergrad. Um, and that's because I picked a class out of my major, out of my course alignment, just to say I've had that one experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm really appreciative also of all the other Black folks that came together to share this piece. Um, and I was reflecting a lot about how to uplift and how to nourish the Black community and Black faculty to have um, more sense of community. You know, if the group is so small, it really drives home the point of needing to nourish each other mm-hmm. and to support each other in a greater way. So I've been thinking about that since reading the book. And, you know, thinking about um, different like ways that, that 
the structure of higher education can and should change in terms of like promotion and tenure and what counts. I was thinking so much reading this. I was like, it, how much value there is to all of these different perspectives, like in, in a book. I love co-authored pieces. I love edited collections. And yet they don't count as much, so certainly in the humanities, mm-hmm. for tenure. Um, they count like half as much or, or less. And yet this book, I think, is so much more valuable for all of those perspectives. Um, and that's one thing that I think I certainly didn't know until I was like toward the end of grad school. Um, and it was only because people deliberately said, like, I know that you like to co-write with people, but it's not going to count as much, just so you know. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, seems like uh, such a great value to the book and also a standard that could change um, in, a, in a way that would be useful for higher ed. And the ability to collaborate is so important in higher education. So it's, it's interesting yes. that it wouldn't be um, you know, appreciated as much as and count towards tenure and promotion as much as it should. Um, another piece is the fact that this is very race specific, this material mm-hmm. um, and race specific material historically has not been recognized on the same level um, as other information, even though clearly um, it's valuable and it's, it adds to the literature. Right. And, and hopefully it adds to um, some situation where there could be change. Uh, but yeah, I, that's that's one thing that as someone who was non-tenured, I struggled with um, because this could have been several journal articles. Right. It could have been several sure. journal articles. And that was even something that I was advised to do because um, I because part of this came from some dissertation findings of mine, but they were unexpected findings. I was studying adult mm-hmm. learning. And I just happened to have a larger population of participants that identified as black and brown. And so then some of these experiences about race and culture and even gender um, came out of that. And the suggestion that was made to me was this could be a really great conference presentation. And then it could be, you know, something that you could make several journal articles from and kind of build on. But I, 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 it just felt like it needed to be more. It felt like there had to be, an, and nothing against journal articles, obviously, you know, we reference several in the book. It's just, it takes on a different, I think some, when you have a book, I feel like you can reach a larger audience. Journal articles are so specific to that particular discipline. Mm-hmm. Usually only people who are within that discipline are more likely to read it. This type of book, I believe, and what I've seen is there's people people outside of higher education, people of various disciplines who are are picking up this book and seeing the value in it and seeing, as as we brought up a few times, their selves in it. Yeah, I'm really appreciative of the book. Um, I'm not sure if it was a journal article at this point in my life when I had picked that up. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. No, no I'm not reading journal articles nowadays. <laughs> I'm not. So yeah. I'm really good. It's a book. <laughs> and it can really reach a larger audience. Um, and so I think it's really about higher education, reimagining what higher education can be, um, what can count for Black faculty. I remember a certain part of the book talked about like meeting the qualifications and how there's different rules for black applicants even, you know, talking about whitening your resume, talking about how sometimes when there is a search committee and 
everyone is really keen on a certain person that happens to be white. They're ready to bend the rules, flip over backwards, and turn a turn a corner. But when the person is black, oh no, 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 we have to follow these strict rules. This person has to meet all these qualifications, but they can't be too qualified now. Um, and it's like this whole different realm of rules for black people versus white people. What can count for us, but can't count for them and this whole different thing. Um, I think it's an interesting conversation that I don't think many folks are having on university campuses. I mean, we try to, of course, <laughs> Jamil, but I'm thinking, I think about it all the time with like, like how much stuff I get away with. Like, I mean, I transitioned like in, um, graduate school um, and as I was applying for academic jobs. So I can say from my own personal experience that even just gender wise, like, you know, being like a white woman and then now being a white man, I mean, I'm smarter. Um, I can wear whatever clothes I want. I can, you know, speak very freely. I can talk about, and I do talk about race all the time in my class. And yet my evals don't say like, oh, this class was terrible. He made everything about race. You know, so I, I, I like, I can see how long the rope that I have is. I mean, I can, I just have so much freedom um, just based on white maleness that I see very clearly um, other folks don't have. Um, and it's, that's one thing that just comes through very clearly, like over and over in the book, like how standards are truly not equal. Mm -hmm at all the rules are different they just are different the playing field different yeah and i think it's just it's it's just coming to terms with it but i i believe that if you're kind of if you're in the driver's seat or if you're in the winning position then without without speaking for others it's like if i'm already winning why would i want to change change the rules so i'm not winning why would i want to kind of make an even playing field. Like if I'm benefiting from it greatly and it's mm -hmm. whether it be um, additional opportunities, whether it impacts my salary, how much I'm making, like with all these things, I can hear these subjects and I'm, I'm empowered and emboldened because even looking at it for, if we said African-American community as a black male versus how the voice of a black female may be, you know, muted a little bit more, but, but it's like, you you kind of have a choice, and that lets you know at the, that lets you know at the end of the day: Are you here to really help, or are you here to hurt? Are you really trying to advocate? Are you trying to be an ally? Are you trying to be an adversary? Like all of these things, because it's you know you should if you want equal treatment for everybody, you should be able to identify the fact that you know I'm aware of the fact that I have a privilege, but it's not fair that for a reason that you can't control, or quite honestly, a reason that makes absolutely no sense, you have to claw a little bit more than I have to. And it almost requires me in some form or fashion to at the very least, at the very least speak up, raise my hand and say, hey, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Whether I'm speaking to my institution or whether I'm speaking to my peer and saying, you know, what you said, it, doesn't, it definitely has value. Because as we mentioned at the beginning of the call, like these, thing, these things carry weight. These people, everyone has to go home and deal with these things on their own if they don't have that support. So I think it's just part of that process. Yeah, 
Um, but it just keeps reminding me of a few different pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have this long list of quotes <laughs> <laughs> that I'm just, I'm just. Oh yeah, so happy read to with. us. Yes. Read to us. Read to us. Um, you know, no one wants to be where they're not wanted. No. I, I sat on that for a long time. I, I sat on that because I, I think so many Black folks can relate to the feeling of not being wanted in higher education and posing the question of, do I want to stay in a field that doesn't want, appreciate, and value me? Another really good quote that I've been thinking about is, I wonder whether I want to be in a field, academia, where you have to whitewash yourself. Um, how profound, you know? Mm-hmm. You want to bring your full self to academia and the value of bringing your full self, your cultural self to Mm -hmm. this space can just for research, for opportunities, for mentoring, the value that brings to an institution, but not being able to do so, um, the feelings that would bring up. And then lastly, you know, this is towards the bottom, like I think the last chapter of the book, but I love this question. I, I read this question and I said, we got to have to ask this question now. Um, looking within your organization, okay. how have you impacted Black lives that work alongside you for the better? I said, oh, what changes have you implemented to create healthy environments to not only teach, but also learn and develop? How are you only promoting illusions of inclusivity? Questions such as these differentiate those that have served as advocates pushing bar- barriers and those that are chasing recognition or a pat on the back for the efforts of their colleges and universities, regardless of what's projected to the masses and the accolades received from the mainstream. What matters most is changing the lives of those marginalized groups for the better and the fight to achieve true equity for all. Will you be an ally or adversary? Which I think you were kind of hinting at Justin um that part right there I I think some folks need to sit on that and I think that's that's the key component is this is this just a bumper sticker for you is this something that I put in my lawn is this something that I update on my social media like what how how much are we really about this? Is it just something that, you know, I, I actually want to be part of the fight or I just want to talk about the fight. Um, the dif- differentiating the difference between what are words versus what are actions. Words are always key. We also, we always want everyone to be able to speak up, uh, provide empathy, be able to express whatever the transgressions are. But we know that words are better when they're coupled with actions. And I think it's it's almost, it's almost like drawing a line in the sand of saying, you know, where, where, where do you really want this to take, take you? Um, as you were mentioning earlier, Casey, with like the somewhat of the privilege that you have, like, mm-hmm. is it in your mind, is it worth sacrificing this for me to have this quote unquote utopia that I have to go to the, to this other thing and almost in your mind, what is the other thing that you're thinking about? Like, what what is the worst case scenario that you think is going to happen if you know you speak up and you kind of create a society, create an environment, I should say, where those that feel unspoken or feel as though they can't they can't speak, they now have that opportunity. Like, what what's the worst that happens with it? Because as long as everyone feels valued, as long as everyone feels respected, then I will deliver to you what you deliver to me. But if you on the flip side of that coin. 
if you deliver something to me that's not as a, we'll just say satisfactory for the sake of the conversation. What, what do you really expect in return? And then unfortunately, as NT had mentioned, some people just pack up their stuff. And I think when you think about, when we look at that with like the hiring committees, mm -hmm. uh, we all know, we've all been younger of, you know, trying to get summer jobs, trying to get jobs throughout the year. It's like, oh, you gotta do all these things. And you go, when you go to the resume, I have to say all these key things when, so in order for me to get the interview. But then think about the person that's hiring you and certain promises that they give you or certain things like, oh, what's the culture? And then you get there is being mindful of, are you just reading from a piece of paper? Are you asking me questions from a piece of paper? Or are you like, do you really believe in what you're saying? Because it's, it, it comes out in some form or fashion. So it's almost keeping in mind, what am I gonna do to bring people in? That's key whenever you're doing hiring. But then the, also aspe the other aspect of it is, once I have you here, what can we do to make sure that we keep you here? Yeah. So it's it's always keeping that in mind when it comes to institutions. We got you, but we want you to be here. We want you to know that we want you to be here. So how can we display that? So yes, there was a portion of the book that talked about um, how a lot of Black people leave an institution not because of money, but because of mm -hmm. their connections with other faculty, the experiences mm -hmm. they're having with other faculty. You know, if you have well, I, I can only imagine, but if you're the first and maybe only Black faculty member in an all-white department, mm -hmm. that is a heavy experience to have. And to think about how you may be treated in that space, is your work valued? Are you valued as a person? Um, or are you there more as a token? And I think if folks start looking at our diversity in our departments and our divisions and think about the actual experiences these folks are having, it'd be a lot easier to retain folks. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. And I think a recent conversation we had was looking at like diversity and inclusion and understanding that while they're both key components, they are components. It's not a component. Diversity and inclusion is not one and the same. And I think, you know, when we have diversity, it's like, oh, well, look, we've got this person here, this person here, this person here, this, this person here. We're diverse. We're representing everybody. To, but, but one of the things that we've been talking about is inclusion. If I don't feel like I belong to what you were asking, Jamil, like I'm, I'm really here on an island, culturally, like it's, it's different. Like, yes, there's certain things that we can speak about. We can talk about a million and one things, but there's certain things that are tapped into me personally, my specific, my identity, my when I go home, that if I can't connect with you about that, we can talk about everything related to the work that we do, but when we, do we have the ability to unplug? And unfortunately for some black faculty that are kind of stranded or isolated, they don't feel as though they have that opportunity or that environment to, you know, shoot the, shoot the proverbial. Like, let's just joke. It's just when I talk to you, it's strictly business. And as soon as our business is done, then I'm gonna go back to myself. But, you know, while for some people they may say that that's fine, you know, it's, 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 it's a heavy burden because you, when you have fellow faculty they're a resource. There's someone that you can leverage, somebody you can lean on. And if you really feel like you have no one that you can lean on, then, and you feel like there's no one that appreciates you, then why would I, why would I stay? That wouldn't make any sense. And then on top of that, right, when you do speak to this Black faculty, it's about African-American history events. It's about yeah. what do you think about this DEI initiative? What do you think about this problem in my department relating to race? race, 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 race. Like you are the person, 
you are the spokesperson of the black community, not just African-American, but the, the entire black community. Um, and we need you to come speak at this event to represent your people and to help solve your issues. Uh, and think about the weight that's added on top of that. So if you're not feeling included, and then people only come to you about this hyper-specific issue, um, mm -hmm. what does that tell you about your place in the university and mm -hmm. how your university looks at you for service? Yeah. Yeah. The idea of the token or making making it funny because it's happened recently. Hey, it's Black History Month. What do you think that we need to put on the menu? Because you know what every person eats, apparently. So. And they uh, want you to do it for free. Boom. Jamil, say, say that again. Say that again. <laughs> boom. Come on now. <laughs> Not the free labor, not the free emotional labor. Mm -hmm. One piece I loved in the book is how you kept referencing the naysayers. Mm -hmm. I noticed it a couple of times, you know, I loved how we addressed the naysayers in the book. Mm. Um, you know, some folks may not believe that these experiences are happening across campuses across the nation. They may believe that these experiences are coincidental. They may be a person that's a wrong fit for the wrong shoe at a wrong university and maybe just needs to leave their job. Um, what do you think about the naysayers? What do you think um, that a person that may be from the population of naysayers, because I'm sure that's a large population, that may, for some reason, open your book, how should they approach it? So that's something that me and T have spoken about a lot. With anything, you always you always anticipate detractors. You always always anticipate naysayers. And you know both things can be true because it would be it would be wrong for me to say any type of criticism or any type of uh, questioning of the material that we have. No, we're we're not the end all be all. What we say is not necessarily the truth, but it all depends on conversation. So honestly, if you have if you don't agree with with what I say then I would like for you to use your voice the same way that we used our voice to, you know, provide your opinion. And as long as you're being respectful, as I mentioned earlier, I give you, I give back what I receive. As long as we can have a very educated or very respectful or safe conversation, then I think that there's really no problem because the other aspect that we want when we were talking about cross-culture, when we're talking about building these platforms environments is everyone just wants to feel safe. I want to feel as though if I speak to you about something, if I agree with you, Jamil, then great. But if I disagree with you, you should feel safe and I should feel safe. So, but for those people that are detracting to be detracting, nation, just, I hate this book. I look at the first page or I look at the cover and I say, oh, look at that black guy with his hand down. I just don't even want to read it. It's, it's going to happen. Like, oh, the time is too long. What do you mean we're not okay? I'm okay too. If you got the book, we appreciate it. But um, I think certain certain people aren't ready to have certain conversations, mm. and that's okay too. Because I think we all deal with it in our in our in our in our individual lives. My household may be different from your household, maybe different from your household, and we have conversations in our personal lives, whether it be family, spouses, kids. That we understand that where I am at, that person may not be there, or where they're at, I'm not ready for that. Not mentally equipped or emotionally available for that type of conversation. 
And that's that's fine too. But if you want to detract just for the sake of detracting, then you're not really part of our target audience because at the end of the day, we want to move forward. We don't want to be in that proverbial hamster wheel. We don't want to keep spinning, 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 spinning. Well, you know, this is what's going on here. This is what's going on here. I understand that. And I definitely agree with you. I think that we should definitely have that conversation. But we're talking about black faculty and higher education and offering strategies. So I want to give you the platform to talk about what you want to talk about. But I also require that you give me the opportunity, that you give me that time and that patience to also talk about what I want to talk about. So for you, yes, that would be what we have for the detractors. But NT, I'm not sure if you had something of how you would respond to the detractors of the book. You already so passionately responded. <laughs> um, Got a little hot, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think because this is this is something that you know we we often deal with in higher ed, where there are a group of people who see an issue, they talk about how to solve that issue, and there's a group of people who feel like this is not an issue, or why are we focusing on only this group of people when all these other all these other groups have issues as well. Um, and so for me, it's always, can you give me an informed argument and the, the keyword being informed um, argument as to why this book maybe isn't valid? Because we, we are supporting everything with literature. We are supporting everything with real life experiences. Uh, you know, we have research based arguments here. So as, as Justin said, if you're going to come and say, well, this isn't valid. Um, this isn't true. This isn't happening. I think earlier in the book, I said a lot of people may feel like, you know, and we know that there's a segment of the population that feels like this is all based on delusions. This mm -hmm. isn't really going on, right? Mm -hmm. So come come to me with the information that you have that shows that this actually isn't happening. Because we can show you that we can show you the research that it is happening. So I would need you to show me the research that it isn't happening. And of course, we would love for people to, you know, read this and maybe change um, their mind about things, which can possibly happen. Um, but we know that, I mean, we also have to be realistic. Like this this book, more than anything, is for people who are ready for change and want to be a part of change. Mm -hmm. mm. I also feel like that's something that comes up, those arguments come up a lot when we talk about black experiences versus other experiences, you know, they read the cover, we're not okay. Well, I'm not okay either. Um, <laughs> yeah, what about these other groups of people? Like it's the uh, oppression Olympics somehow, <laughs> oh, you know, no. like my pain matters more than your pain. Well, what, well, this happened to me too and I'm not black. Um, when we don't necessarily deal with that same kind of argument and pressure when it comes to other topics within DEI, um, that tends to come up really strongly. And I think it mirrors the political landscape and just the national conversations we're having as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, in I mean, oh, okay, sorry. Go ahead, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say in Tennessee right now, we have um, a bill that is in legis legislation um, that is connected to these types of topics. Um, they're being labeled as divisive concepts um, and they are essentially trying to ban us from having these types of discussions in public higher, public institutions of higher education. Um, so, you know, this book probably wouldn't appear on a bookshelf in a library at a public institution of higher education where this bill has passed, because it's not just this state, it's obviously very, you know, it's various states other than Tennessee. Um, 
And then also, you know, things like we talked about search committees, right? And we talked about how, you know, what goes on in search committees and part of that is unconscious bias that can occur. Mm -hmm. And we know that now there's some, some institutions do mandatory, if you're gonna be a search committee, you have to do mandatory unconscious bias, implicit bias training. Well, essentially, if that bill is passed, you can no longer mandate mm -hmm. that type of training. Um, so there's, so we're trying to, I feel like we're trying to push forward now in an environment where everybody's kind of, I mean, not everybody, but quite a few people are trying to hit reverse. Um, mm -hmm. Which makes it a lot harder to push forward, but we still have to keep going. Casey and I have these conversations all the time <laughs> about the constant bills in education that are coming up, mm -hmm. K through 12 and higher ed that are trying to mm -hmm. slow the progress of DEI, that are trying to, you know, the stop the, the don't be woke bill, the don't say gay bill, the mm -hmm. your, your children can't read these kind of books. This mm -hmm. is what critical race theory is. No, this is what critical race theory is. This is why it's a monster in a closet. Um, and something I think about, yeah. and I've been thinking about for years, if we can't have hard conversations in higher ed, if we cannot have hard, educated, you know, where we go back and forth in higher ed, then where in this country can we have those conversations? Right. If you can't read books that make you uncomfortable while you're in a university, whether that's, you know, your undergrad, your graduate program, where could you, where is it appropriate to read such a book? You know, you won't always be comfortable in your learning. You will not always feel secure in your learning. But the place to have the exchange of ideas, the whole purpose of going to a university, the whole purpose of getting a degree is to exchange ideas with others, to think mm -hmm. about progressing humanity forward. If you can't do that in higher ed, then what are we doing as a nation? What are we doing as an industry? Um, and how are we serving our students? And how are we serving our colleagues and our peers if we can't do that here? And how yeah, are we serving I mean, employers? Yeah, yeah. seriously. You Nothing. all mentioned early on in the book about, you know, in talking about code switching, like, oh, everybody to a certain extent code switches. Mm -hmm. But if you can't talk specifically about how it's truly different for black people in higher ed that is different than the kind of code switching where like i'm talking to my friend versus i'm talking to my grandma mm -hmm. and we need to talk very specifically about what that looks like and it is different from different communities who also code switch but this is there's a um such an importance in being specific about about communities and about experiences that if we're just you know in this colorblind um you know racism is in the past existence that we can't actually deal with these problems. We can't. And I think one of the things that we were uh, talking about, slightly joking about a little bit earlier, is when we're looking at like hair. So mm -hmm. another legislation, the Crown Act, mm -hmm. uh, or creating a respectful and open workplace for natural hair, you would think in your mind like, oh, I can wear my hair however I, however I choose to. It shouldn't matter as long as it's done or as long as I'm not out here looking crazy, then it shouldn't be a problem. But you know, they've identified identified specifically for you know black and brown individuals or men and women that they deal with some forms of discrimination based upon their hair whether it be locks whether it be natural uh, however you may have it and it kind of limits their ability to, for advancement whether it be education or whether it be um employment or even tenure i remember having a conversation with a friend of mine of saying you know he wanted to he wanted to go to he wanted to get he was looking at a, a 
particular director position at his job. And at the same time, he was growing his hair out and he had doubts about it because he was like, he, he, know, he has the knowledge. He's been with the company for however long. He was like, do you really think that, you know, they would, you think this would be a problem? And the fact that you have to think about that is crazy. I mean, there was, a, there was even a time before where you would say in corporate, the corporate world, the idea of wearing, wearing a beard was taboo. It didn't make any sense. Having tattoos with tattoos, it, it didn't make any sense. It was this old, old age of thinking that, you know, it's kind of obsolete and obsolete. And as you were talking about, Jamil, like if we're really trying to use certain places like colleges and universities to prepare the youth for the future, we need to make way for the future. We can't just continue to keep these old ideologies because it's not, not benefiting. We're all going, so everyone needs to grow together. Yeah. Also, I think the the really sad part of that we even have to have the Crown Act is when you think about it, it's like, all right, so wait, the way my hair naturally grows out of my scalp is an mm -hmm. issue <laughs> for me to, mm -hmm. to exist in, an, in a work environment. Like that alone is just insane that we have to say, well, the way my hair naturally grows out of my scalp, I can, can I do that? Can I wear my hair like this? Like it's, when you really start to think about it, it's like, wow, we had to have a bill just yeah. for us to be able to allow, for us to be allowed to do this. And it's just strange. It's almost like we had to have a bill to exist because that's yeah. what it is. It's not something like to control it with chemicals and hot combs, right? But you know what I mean? But other than that, it's just, it's, it's, it's natural. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, professionals that are black, it's even our children. We have mm -hmm. to have the Crown Act for students K through 12 so they can walk in their graduation with mm -hmm. dreads so that mm -hmm. when they at a wrestling match, someone's not trying to cut their hair. You know, mm -hmm. I've seen so many videos over the year of a, you know, a girl going to school and she coming back and they cut her hair. Mm -hmm. Or the same thing to a guy and they cut his hair. Some teacher did it. Um, and the question of, can I grow my hair on a professional space? Would that be a problem? I normally would say it probably will become a problem at some point. I think as Black people, we are hyper aware of our professionalism, how we are appearing in spaces, how we have to dress in spaces, how clean shaven we have to be at all the time, the amount of money we have to spend on our hair. Um, and then I think it goes back to who defines professionalism, mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. defining um, how we should dress in this workspace, how we should show up, how our hair should look, how should we speak, how presentable, what is presentable. Um, I think it goes back to that notion of what is that. Um, and I also think about the power we have as Black people. Like, I don't wear my hair grown out, but sometimes I do just to feel a little powerful, just to feel like, because I can. Um, and I think sometimes when we go back and we push back against those notions, there's a inherent power in that. There is, absolutely. There is, I definitely agree. Well, I wonder, you know, one thing we like to do with guests on the podcast is um, to do some radical reimagining of higher ed. And you yeah. two are excellent people to do that with. <laughs> so in your most radical imagining, what could what could higher education look like? Like, what might it feel like to walk through a campus or into a classroom or a meeting? If you if you could just in your wildest dreams, what would that be like? 
what could it be? I mean, I think everyone in a space being their authentic selves, feeling safe, um, feeling like they can be open, that they can have respectful dialogue, um, you know, just in, in, in a comfort, a comfort that they have in the space, not just, you know, I also think about physical space, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if I require a wheelchair, you know, not feeling like, oh gosh, I have to ask these people to build a ramp. It's just already there. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that type of thing. Um, something that, that I've been looking more into is something that happens as far as size discrimination, which a lot of people aren't aware of, right? You know, you have a student who may be slightly larger than the other students. And so they can't necessarily fit in these tiny little desks that you've put here. Mm -hmm. so it, it would mean, you know what, all the desks are as big as they need to be. There's gonna be a desk for everyone, no matter their size, you know? And mm -hmm. of course, you know, we wanna see representation at all levels, you know, diverse representation at all levels where the students, the students are diverse, the faculty are diverse, the staff are diverse. Um, and again, it's just, it's just that, it's just a, a safe space, a safe space. Yeah, and I think for myself, my utopia uh, would actually be like a true, a true melting pot where cultures, individuals, genders, we all have the freedom to, you know, connect as we see fit, you know, learning about different things. One of the things I mentioned was like the employee resource groups, being able to learn about different cultures, learn about different lifestyles, learn about different um, aspects of identity and individuality. Um, in that, as we were mentioning before, college, uh, K through 12, all those different parts of education are preparing, prepare, supposed, to prepare, supposed to prepare you for the real world. So let's actually come through with that promise. It's about mm -hmm. having conversations that you know are meant to be uncomfortable, but it's developing communication skills, it's developing skills that you know, if you're not pushed to have the conversation, you'll never have the conversation. And you can be 50 not having the conversation. You can be in your 60s, your 70s, and you never have the conversation. So just having a melting pot where you know, you're know you continuously introduced to different identities, different cultures, different groups, and given that um, platform to you know interact with each other, never force anything because if you force it, nobody wants to do it, but do it in a way where it's continuously feeling inviting. More often than not, if you speak to the student body because they are the future, they can give you ideas of how to make a more safe environment that works for them because they all integrate with one another they communicate with each other in some form or fashion so it's kind of when we always say tapping into the youth seeing what you know you would want to make this more healthy make you make this a little bit more um prosperous for you in your experience so those are some things in my mind if if i could do college again <laughs> would have been great mm. Something I'm thinking of is almost opening the door to universities. You know, universities always feel so closed off sometimes mm -hmm. from the communities in which they stand in, from the type of people that are allowed in, um, mm -hmm. from admission rates, just from the faculty that are hired, the staff that are hired. I would like, you know, like everybody's saying, we want diversity everywhere, but I also want higher ed to be accessible you know, to folks that may want to get a PhD or folks that just want to audit a course and folks to feel comfortable 
and have the option to proceed both. Um, to see their self represented in faculty and staff and the student body, but also to truly be at service to its community. You know, to allow folks from the community to come into the university, interact with the staff, interact with the students, and be, you know, something a little bigger than it traditionally is. Um, I think about universities as being this beacon of knowledge. And I really wish more people from our communities and our states have access to the knowledge itself. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I... I think about, you know, what would it be like um, for no one to have to code switch, you know, when they come onto campus, you know? I was talking with students about this recently and they were like, I literally can't imagine it. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I, it's, it, I think like that's where we need to get that folks who, whether they're in the community that the university where, where they are, where the school is, um, to feel a sense of belonging um, and to not feel like you're stepping into an exclusive space where you know you're not really supposed to be there. Um, this wasn't designed for you. That that we've eradicated that, and that for faculty, you know, that freedom I was of like expression really is what it is that I was talking about as a as a faculty member. Um, that everybody feel that sense of being able to be their full selves in the classroom. Um, and not have to hold anything back, not have to perform something, not have to be inauthentic or overly cautious or all of that, that, that we, everyone could have their full sense of self and community with them at all times. Mm. So can we do all of this? I was gonna say, let's build this, <laughs> let's build this institution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen. Listen, watch out. <laughs> That'd be something. Um, <laughs> And I'm quickly just thinking of students that may be listening to this. Um, and something I want to say for students that are listening, even though that, you know, you may not have the faculty experience, you may not be looking at it from this lens. Um, I think it's so important to support your Black faculty, you know, try to take their courses, seek them out, see who they are, um, but also re realize your power in higher ed and in university spaces. Um, try not code switching. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, students keep university lights on. If you do it in large enough numbers, see what happens. You know, be a sounding board for your Black faculty. I think so often um, students supporting faculty is what really matters for admin, what really matters for the state of higher education, that support, that kinship. Um, and so this topic may not be extremely student-centered, but I think students, um, in particular, Black students can take a lot from this conversation. Well, thank you both, Justin yes. and Tia, for joining us today. Go get their book. Get can the they pre-order it? Can they pre-order it? Yes, pre-order it. Oh, great. All websites where books are sold, so Walmart, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, we're, we're on all the websites. And it, you know, I imagine like groups of administrators reading this book, implementing some new policies, there's so much potential in this book. Um, we read it cover to cover. Um, it's, it's really a powerful book. So anyway, go get the book. Um, thanks everyone for listening and you know, we'll see you next week. Thank you guys again. Thank you.